0: are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast
1: with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, John Knight. He's the managing director of Ellen Medical Devices, Private Limited. He's also a professorial fellow, uh, Renal and Metabolic Division uh, Professor of Medicine at UNSW Sydney, as an adjunct professor of pediatrics and child health at the Children's Hospital in Westmead as well. And we're going to be talking about uh, dialysis and hopefully some positive developments in that uh, arena. So, John, thanks for coming.
2: It's great to be with you.
1: Yeah, so um, why the interest in uh, in dialysis and kidney disease? Where did that uh, start for you
2: and... How long have you been in it? I, I trained in medicine, uh, in medical school, and then I specialized in diseases of the kidney in children. And for about uh, 25 years, I worked in the clinic looking after children with a variety of kidney diseases and doing dialysis and doing kidney transplantation. So I've been a kidney guy for most of my career. I didn't even realize that the children ever have a kidney disease. What, what were some of the problems that affected children and why? Well, unfortunately, kidney disease is quite rare in in children. And so the the specialty, it's called paediatric nephrology diseases of the kidney in children, is quite a small specialty with just um, relatively few doctors who practice it. But there's a a proportion of children who sadly are born with malformations of their kidneys. The kidneys might be small or damaged and they develop kidney failure sometimes in the first um, four or five years of life. And then there's another group of children who get autoimmune kidney disease where their immune system turns around and attacks the kidneys. And uh, that group also often ends up on dialysis. So most of us who practice in that area might have at any one time between 10 and 20 children on on dialysis. But the good thing about our particular specialty is that very commonly uh, the, the parents like to give a kidney to the child. So we see a lot of living related kidney donation. Um, from the parent to the child. And that usually works very, very well and gives you a very good outcome. And we have many patients who've had their kidneys for 20, 30 years from the parent and uh, are doing very well.
1: Oh, wow. Huh. So um, in terms of dialysis,
2: is that where you're focusing your efforts now and trying to make advances? Or what, what are you working on at this moment? Yes, that's that's exactly right. Um, I, I was in clinical practice for a long time and then I worked in business for quite some time. I worked for Johnson & Johnson internationally particularly in, in Europe and Asia, uh, and then I got headhunted by um, uh, an organization called the George Institute for Global Health, which is a not-for-profit medical research uh, institute here in Sydney, and I joined them about six years ago as a prof- professorial fellow, and uh, we got interested in asking some big-picture questions about kidney disease around the world. Okay, so like, like what questions, what, do you, uh, you know, what, you, what are you focusing on at this moment? Well, you know, dialysis is, is the system we use to replace the function of the kidney, and it's, it's safe and effective, and it was invented in the 1950s, so it's been around for nearly 70 years now. And uh, it's uh, highly successful, but it's very expensive. So in, in the USA, it can cost more than $100,000 a year to treat just one patient. So in, in, no family could afford that, you know. So even in the US and, in fact, in all Western countries, the, the community picks up the cost of dialysis through the tax system, and that way people can get treated. But that's only true in Western countries, in rich countries. In the developing world, uh, the majority of people who have kidney failure can't afford the treatment, so they'll die from their disease, even though there's a safe and effective treatment available. And about uh, eight years ago now, the George Institute got interested in just what Numbers were like, and we did. This is what the George Institute does. It does the big picture questions. So we asked, how many people are there in the world who need dialysis for their kidney failure, and how many people are actually getting treatment? Uh, and in round figures, it turned out there's around 10 million people and need dialysis in the in the world every year. Around two and a half million people. Actual figure is 2.6 million people get treatment because they live in the U.S. or Australia or in Western Europe or in Japan but 7.5 million people, like three out of every four people who need dialysis will die just because they can't afford it. So this is a a preventable human tragedy that's about cost. And uh, we published that in in The Lancet in March 2015 and created a big stir because no one had really put those numbers down on paper before.
1: Well, what is it about dialysis that uh, makes it so expensive? Is it the materials used to cycle through the body is it the machines is it the time
2: there's a lot of factors it's an industry in most places it's a for-profit industry it tends to be an oligopoly so there's just two or three companies that deliver dialysis around the world um, because it's reimbursed by governments there isn't a lot of downward pressure on price um, so it's only it's semi-competitive if you like but it has to be said that the existing technology is quite expensive you've got a uh, for the hemodialysis, the blood dialysis, you've got a machine about the size of a bar fridge, and then that's got to be connected to um, a special plumbing system that using reverse osmosis that produces pure water. Uh, the machine might cost fifteen, twenty thousand dollars. The special plumbing might cost another ten or twelve thousand dollars, and then um, the patient has to go on that machine for five hours, three times a week, um, to clean their blood, and. Most times, that's not done by the patient themselves, but that's done by a nurse in a clinic. So you've got the cost of building and maintaining the clinic. You've got the cost of the nurses' wages, and uh, then you've got the profit margin, and it adds up to uh, a lot of money. Oh, um, in dialysis, I mean, what's what's new about it? It was
1: invented quite a long time ago. You know, has the technology upgraded? Like, what's changed? Is it
2: better than it used to be, or not really? Look, I would have to say, even as a kidney guy, that there's been very little in the way of technological development. You know, in my lifetime, I've seen a, a computer go from the size of, of, of a caravan to, to something you can hold in your hand. Yet during that period, um, the fundamental blood dialysis machine really hasn't changed. It might have acquired an LED screen and a few more buttons, but the fundamental way it works hasn't really changed. In the 1970s, a second form of dialysis um, was introduced by a guy called Oriopolis, a Canadian. And uh, this is called peritoneal dialysis or dialysis in the belly. And this is a different system which has become quite popular in some countries now. Um, How it works is that you have a two-litre bag of uh, water with some salt and some sugar in it, and a surgeon will sew a tube into your belly uh, and the end of the tube nestles between the loops of bowels and that tube stays there all the time. And you run that two litres of salty water into your belly uh, and you leave it there for four or five hours. And the waste products in your blood that the kidney should be dealing with, those, those waste products can drift out into that fluid. And then you change the fluid and put a fresh bag in. And in the original form of this system, you might change the bag four times a day, seven days a week. It takes about half an hour to do a bag change. And that's peritoneal dialysis or PD. And that's quite a bit cheaper than hemodialysis HD. And it's becoming increasingly popular, particularly in the developing world. Uh, But it's still quite expensive. You're still looking at between $70,000 and $80,000 a year. You can get it down if you're careful to as low as $40,000 a year. Still more than most people can afford. Um, And our new technology that I'm going to be telling you about later on, we've chosen to use the peritoneal dialysis system, the PD system, dialysis in the belly rather than the blood system, because we think it has real advantages for the patients.
1: So what happens when someone's on dialysis? Um, I mean, what happens to their urine? Do they, you know, like I don't know, do, do the products of urine, are there the last dregs of them that get caught up inside the uh, urinary tract and crystallized? Like what, you know, do people still pee when they're on dialysis and
2: what happens in that regard? Some of them do, some of them don't. Um, The measure we use is called the GFR, the glomerular filtration rate. The glomerulus is the little filter in your kidney. And when you're healthy, um, your kidneys filter about 120 mils of blood a minute. And that's a lot of blood, five or six litres an hour. And, you know, your whole blood volume is only around five litres. So you're filtering your entire blood volume 15, 20 times a day. So there's a fantastic reserve capacity. So even when you start to get kidney failure, that GFR figure, which in health is about 120 mils a minute, goes down 100, 70, 50, 30, 20, and then you've got chronic kidney disease. But You don't actually need dialysis until that filtration rate is down around 8 to 10 mils per minute. So by that time, you've lost over 90% of the filtering function of the kidney. But that little bit of filtering, 10 mils a minute, still goes on and you still get some urine going into your uh, bladder, so you still go and have a pee from time to time. There is a group of patients who've had both their kidneys removed for cancer or for some other reason, and they don't make any urine at all. But most most dialysis patients make a little bit of urine, and as the years go by on dialysis, the urine gets less and less and less, and um, uh, it might be only once or twice a week that they have to empty their bladder. But it's a a very commonly uh, asked question, and the fact is that even with advanced kidney failure, you still do make a little bit of urine. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Um, So what is this new technology that that you're working on? What's it about? Well, you know, getting back to our survey, we published that data in The Lancet about how three out of every four people around the world were were dying a needless death because they couldn't get access to dialysis treatment. And we knew that the journalists would ask us, well, okay, you found a problem. What are you going to do about it? And the George Institute, where I work, is kind of focused on solutions as much as problems. We're interested in identifying problems, but we're also interested in trying to find a solution. So at the same time as we um, published that paper, we announced a global competition called the Affordable Dialysis Prize. Uh, I raised $100,000 for prize money from a variety of um, very generous donors, particularly some of the kidney societies, the leading kidney societies around the world. Um, and the George Institute kicked in some money, and we the terms of the competition were that we wanted inventors to invent a low-cost form of dialysis um, that could use solar power, um, that could purify water from any source, that was portable, might fit into like a carry-on suitcase, um, and would cost less than a thousand dollars to manufacture and only a few dollars a day to run. And we put that out there. We got a lot of entries in. We had an international judging panel. And um, there are about 10 people on the panel, actually. The names of them are on our website at um, org. if um, anyone wants to go and have a look. And uh, we eventually uh, announced a winner, and the winner was actually chosen unanimously um, uh, as the strongest
1: entry. Okay. So what, what did the winner look like? I mean, was the, did the system meet all the
2: specs? What, what was uh... Yeah, the system met, met all the specs and the, the winning entry looked a little bit like a, a, a waste paper basket in an office. Uh, it, it's about uh, two feet high and it's round and it weighs about maybe uh, 10, 12 pounds um, or oh, four or five kilos if you're in, in the metric system. And what it is is it's a pure water distiller. It can operate on solar power. It can also operate off a of power point, obviously, and it can take water from any source, tap water, Tank water, river water, and it distills it in the same way as you might distill um, whiskey and makes it into water that's so pure that it's medical grade water. It could be used for injecting um, into a vein if you wanted to. Um, And this little distiller um, can produce one litre of medical grade water an hour. So our system, and this is the neat part about it, this is the low cost part about it, uh, can sit on the kitchen table, you can fill it up with water. It can produce a couple of litres of pure water, and then you can use that to fill up a bag for peritoneal dialysis, for dialysis in the belly, on the kitchen table. Um, Instead of having to have that bag manufactured in a factory a long way away and shipped to your home, you can make it yourself at home. So that's the fundamental breakthrough in our system, is point of care filling of the bag for peritoneal dialysis.
1: Well, that sounds like that would be a great system to get fresh water and In many countries, too. I mean, it seems like it could have many uses.
2: Absolutely right. You know, we've come to this through the lens of kidney disease, if you like, because we're kidney guys. But the fact that you've got a little distiller that can produce medical grade water sitting in the corner of the room would have a lot of uses. You know, you could use it in a in a military application for a field hospital. You could um, fill the water up with um, uh, fill the bag up with water and add some salt, and it could be used as IV fluids and in an operating theatre. in a military application, you could use it for um, uh, treating Ebola or or cholera or childhood diarrhoea with IV fluids. You could also use it to make up oral rehydration fluid for treating um, childhood diarrhoea by uh, oral rehydration. And, in fact, a a family could use it for um, uh, drinking water and and cooking water if they didn't have access to um, to, uh, um, fresh water from the tap. Although there are, to be fair, other systems where you can do that if you don't have to actually inject the water. You can use a different system called reverse osmosis, which sits under the sink, that provides fairly pure water, but not pure enough for our purposes. So there are a few other solutions if you're just looking for drinking water. Um, The advantage of our system is that it makes um, water for injection, which is the highest quality of medical-grade water.
1: So is it... uh... Is it going to be used? I mean, what's, what's the barrier now to getting
2: it in use and replacing some of the existing equipment that makes the water? Well, the, the time lag between a new invention of a new medical device and getting that um, invention registered and approved by the regulatory authorities and onto the market is usually of the order of five or six years. It can often be as long as 10 years. So we set up a little company, Ellen Medical Devices, Um, I'm the managing director of that uh, company. The uh, guy who invented the dialysis system, a guy called Vincent Garvey, is the uh, director of engineering. And uh, we've raised some capital and we've built some prototypes. And in July last year, we led a manufacturing contract to build um, 50 examples of our pure water distiller and 10,000 bags with a little bit of salt and sugar in them. Um, And we're going to use those. They're due to be delivered in September. And we're going to be using those in clinical trials with patients to demonstrate that it's safe and effective. And before the COVID-19 came along, we were hoping to submit to the regulators for approval um, at the end of this year. We think with the pandemic, we're looking at around a 12-month delay in our timeline, but we certainly hope to have it available for patients within the next two to three years. So
1: what, what is this going to do to the cost of dialysis? How much do you think it's going to improve it and the
2: speed and et cetera? Well, when you're running dialysis with patients, you've got two costs. You've got the costs of the kit, then you've got the costs of the staff. And what this will do is it will dramatically reduce the costs of the kit by a factor of about 10. And we think that patients will be able to pay maybe $250 a month um, to rent the the distiller and to have the bags. And so that's looking like um, $3,000 or less a year, which is like 10 to 20 times cheaper than what's currently available. The cost of the staff really depends on the salary structure in the country that you're in. So in Australia or in the US, a nurse might be paid a lot of money um, because they're a highly trained professional to do the dialysis. But if you're looking at Africa or India or Indonesia, um, maybe the cost of the staff will be much lower as a proportion of the total cost of dialysis, and the main cost will be in the kit. So in those countries which are missing out, Um, we think this will provide a very significant um, cost advantage and mean that a lot more people can get treated. Uh, It won't help the very, very poorest people in the world, the people who don't have enough to eat, who don't have a roof over their head, um, maybe in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, for example. For those people, the need for dialysis is a long way down their list of needs. But for many people in the developing world now, they do have a roof over their head. They do have enough to eat. And they're wanting, if someone gets sick with kidney failure, they're wanting their their, their mum or their dad to be treated, you know. And for people in that situation, um, we think this will be um, a godsend. Yeah, that's great.
1: Um, Now that the device has been made, do you think that there will be, uh, and I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but do you think there will be ways for people to, I mean, kind of make their own if they're really in desperate straits? let's say, in a truly impoverished country or situation?
2: Look, uh, I don't want to discourage innovation, but I wouldn't recommend it because um, getting the distiller to make the very pure water that's safe, that has absolutely no germs in it and um, you know is reliable, is pretty tough. We've worked pretty hard on it. We've made now 10 different prototypes of this distiller, each one a refinement of the previous one. And, you know, it's not rocket science, but it's also not child's play and if you make up a couple of litres of dirty water and then run it into your belly um, with some germs in it, you're in all sort of trouble. You're probably going to get septicemia and die. So um, we're being incredibly careful to make sure our water, uh, our salt water in the bags is sterile and doesn't contain any pathogens or pyrogens. can't make people sick. And uh, you're also going to need a surgeon. Don't forget to sew that tube into your belly. So this isn't really DIY. It's kind of... Um, Dialysis around the world, it has to be done in the context of some doctors and some nurses and a clinic. And most uh, dialysis patients have to go and see their doctor once a month and get a checkup. So um I I, I guess I'm not a big fan of uh, of DIY surgery at home. Well, it's good to know. You know, I'm not uh, trying to encourage
1: people to do that, but it's good to know there's you know, there's very valid reasons why they shouldn't. So yeah.
2: Yeah, but we, we think that um, our system will be a really useful addition to the current dialysis choices. It's a low-cost choice, and there are a lot of people around the world who are really interested. We've uh, actually established a clinical advisory board, which consists of um, eight or nine kidney specialists from different countries around the world, from Mexico, from Thailand, from China, from India, from Hong Kong, from uh, North America, from Europe. and. Uh, we're meeting regularly with that group, um, usually via Zoom these days, um, so that they can advise us how, the, um, how our system might be used in their countries and how it would fit into their clinics. And that's been terrific to see the amount of enthusiasm that's coming back to us from the front line of a dialysis treatment in different clinics around the world. And the, the message we're getting consistently is that there is a role for our system um, uh, out there. And we're really excited uh, to make it happen.
1: Well, very good. Um, Is this enough or is there more innovation surrounding
2: dialysis that, uh, you know, you're going to put forth or that you're working on? Uh, Look, this is a start. Uh, I think life on dialysis is not a great life. I don't think anyone would choose to be on dialysis if they could avoid it. It keeps you alive, uh, so better than the alternatives, as they say. But um, the best treatment for kidney failure is a kidney transplant. And there aren't enough kidney transplants in the world. There aren't enough donors in the world. There's a long waiting list. There's a pretty horrendous illegal trade in in organs for money, which um, is trying to be stamped out, but that's a tough environment. So the future really lies in in genetically engineered kidneys that can be used for kidney transplants. And there are two lines of um, research in that area. There are people who are trying to um, take domestic pigs that have been bred for meat and modify their kidneys so that they have a similar structure to human kidneys. Now, if you look at a pig kidney, it's quite like a human kidney to to look at, unlike, say, cow or sheep kidneys, they look quite different. But um, on the surface, there are antigens which would set up a really strong immune reaction if you tried to put it in the human. Um, So uh, the genetic engineers are trying to breed a line of pigs where those antigens are bred out through... um, through DNA engineering and substituted with human antigens. So you might end up with a pig that has a kidney that looks like a human kidney from the immunological perspective, from the perspective of recognition by the immune system. And quite a lot of progress has been made in that area. Uh, I'm quietly confident that that's going to work one of these days. There are some issues around viruses because it turns out that pig kidneys have quite a lot of retroviruses in them and that problem has to be solved, but I think it probably can be solved. So genetically modified pig kidneys bred in special farms and available for transplant, that would be a fantastic treatment. The best treatment of all would be to grow a kidney in a test tube in a petri dish. And there, is a, there are people, including people here in Australia, working, working on taking stem cells from patients, um, growing them up in a, uh, in, in a dish, and then instructing them through a variety of clever tricks to um, mutate into human kidneys, which, of course, would then have exactly the same um, immunological characteristics as the uh, original stem cell. So the the holy grail of all of this is to be able to grow someone a new kidney, and I don't know that I will ever see that in my lifetime, um, but that would beat any dialysis, hands down, until the happy day when some of those um, high-flying technolo- technological solutions are available. Um, we think there'll be plenty of room for our um, humble, simple, affordable dialysis system to keep people alive around the world.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Um, last question or so. Why does it, I mean, I think from what I've read, the average person on dialysis uh, you know, doesn't last too long, maybe five, six years. And you know, if you do get a kidney transplant, I mean, I would guess you'd have to be immunosuppressed the rest of your life. So I mean, why, why those two circumstances are so dire? Any? Yeah, well, know.
2: survival on dialysis varies a lot from country to country it's not that great in the usa to be frank with you um uh, yeah. i've seen some recent figures that say um only about 30 percent of patients on dialysis will, will will survive more than a few years um so there's a very high death rate on dialysis in the u.s um in japan um where the dialysis patients are quite elderly and and kidney transplants don't happen very often. They find that at the end of twelve months, ninety percent of their patients are still alive. So um, they must be doing something different to the way things are done in many other countries. It is possible to keep patients on on dialysis alive for a long time, but you need to have the the Japanese approach to to achieve that. Um, it's quite uh, the other thing to say about that life on dialysis is that being hooked up to a machine for five hours. Um, Three times a week it is really doesn't leave much room for a normal life. Mm. Having to change a bag four times a day, seven days a week, is kind of intrusive as well. The most recent form of dialysis is called um, nocturnal um, peritoneal dialysis, and what that is is you still have the tube sewed into your belly, but you have a machine that sits next to your bed. You have a great big liter, a great big bag of salt water that's got eight liters in it, and the machine can gently pump the fluid in and out of your belly at night um, when you're asleep so you hook yourself up to that machine at night you sleep The salt water moves in and out you take it off in the morning and then you're free to go about your business all day and hold down a job you don't have to worry about your dialysis until the night time comes so i think probably if i had to have dialysis i would choose that that nocturnal um automated peritoneal dialysis um and that's um increasingly uh, a choice that a lot of people are preferring but it is more expensive you do need a machine so for the part of the um, problem that we're tackling which is to try and keep the lowest cost um the simple bag change for us is the way to go but down the track if we get our system um out there in the clinic people are using it if it's successful uh, we might look at trying to produce a low-cost nocturnal cycler as well and i think um that could be a good second phase for our company. But, hey, let's get the first phase done first is, is my thought.
1: Okay. Well, very good. Well, you, are,
2: you asked about immunosuppression on uh, on uh, transplantation, and it's quite true right. that people who have had any kind of organ um, transplant have to take immunosuppressive drugs. And there is uh, there are complications of that, and there is a death rate associated with that. But um, in most countries, if you have a kidney transplant, you have around 80 chance of still being alive after 12 months and maybe um, about a 65 to 70% chance of still being alive in five years' time, depending on how old you were when you got the transplant, of course, because um, if you're an old person to start with, then the other causes of death will come into play. So I think that um, from my experience of working in transplant clinics, most transplant recipients are well, able to work, able to have family, able to have kids, and lead a pretty good quality of life, actually. Yeah.
1: Well, very good. Well, John, you know what you're doing is is very important. It's going to help a lot of people. So uh, I hope it it hastens its way into use as soon as
2: possible. And um, yeah, thank you for coming. Well, Richard, it's been great to talk to you today, and uh, I hope that your listeners are going to be interested in our story. And if they would like to find out more about it, uh, the, the company is called Ellen Medical. That's E W L E N Medical. And if they just visit EllenMedical.com. The whole story is there and they can read it. And um, there's also a newsletter. You can sign up um, and be kept informed of our progress. And we'll stay in touch with you and we'll let you know when the system's available. Excellent.
0: You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.